Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to two passages of Scripture. I'd like you to find Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. So two passages of Scripture. We're going to begin in Romans 8, move to Ephesians 1, and then go back to Romans 8. And so please find both of them. And I trust it will serve you well as we hear from God's Word this day. I want to begin by reading our passage out of Romans 8. I'm going to begin in verse 14 and go as far as verse 17. And so please, I encourage you to listen carefully, closely to what the Lord declares in this portion of his word. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I hope the title for this sermon caught your attention. If you didn't notice it, it's right there in the bulletin, in the order of worship. Here it is, in case you missed it, the climax of the Bible. The climax of the Bible. Am I suggesting... Am I suggesting that the content of these verses constitutes the apex, the zenith, the summit, the pinnacle of the Bible, of the Christian faith? Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I am doing more than merely suggesting it. I am affirming it. I am declaring That with these verses, and in particular the content, the central message of these verses in God's word, we come to the climax of the Christian faith. Notice with me three key words. The first word is son. You'll see it there in the 14th verse. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons Of God. You'll find it again in the 15th verse. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. He will use it for a third time in verse 19, but that's beyond the parameters of our text. There you have it, used twice in our text, that little word, sons. Notice, secondly, the word children. You'll find it in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Again in verse 17, and if children, then heirs. He's going to use it yet again, third occasion, right at the end of verse 21. But in our text, our verses, he uses it twice. He uses the word sons twice. He uses the the word children twice. And notice, thirdly, another word. He uses it only once, right there, more or less toward the end of the 15th verse, adoption. Adoption. 
What is Paul declaring, emphasizing in these verses? He is making a point that he has not made before now in this epistle. He's emphasizing something that he has not even mentioned until now. And then all of a sudden in this text, it stands forth, it becomes central, and it is simply this. God is our Father. We are the sons of God by virtue of adoption. And I submit to you, this is the climax of the Bible. What do we mean by adoption? Paul doesn't really identify, he doesn't really define it here. He does, however, define it in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why I ask you to find that portion of Scripture. I invite you now to turn there with me and look at what he declares. Ephesians 1, beginning right at the end of verse 4. He uses these words, in love. Right at the end of Ephesians 1, verse 4. And then he continues into the fifth verse. In love, he, that is God, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice six things. I'm just going to mention these briefly, then we're going to move on. Six aspects of this adoption. Number one, adoption is rooted in love. In love. And so the motivation behind God's adoption of us as his children is love. His loving kindness, his steadfast love, and in particular, his mercy. Notice, secondly, this adoption is predetermined. In love, he destined. No, he did not. In love, he predestined. Pre means what? Before something. Before what? You leap back into the fourth verse, and there Paul leads us by the hands into the secret counsels of the eternal will of God and the doctrine of election. That even before the foundation of the world, those whom God chose, he predestined them for adoption as sons. Predetermined. The third aspect of adoption I want you to notice is this. It is through Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Through Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is the means by which this adoption is affected, realized. Namely, his ransom upon Calvary's cross. That he had to atone for our sin. He had to pay the penalty for our sin. Whereby there would be this alteration in our status in God's sight. Whereby we would no longer be alienated from him. But he would adopt us to himself as sons. Notice, fourthly, adoption is according, it's right there in the fifth verse at the end, according to the purpose of his will. Why does God adopt, why did he adopt me? He did so according to the purpose of his will. In other words, his impetus, his reasoning, his motivation resides within him. The secret counsels of his will. Notice, fifthly, as we move into the sixth verse, adoption is to the praise of his glorious grace that he is going to put on display 
his adopted children for all eternity, and they will serve this all-glorious promise, this all-glorious purpose, in that they will reflect the grace of God. Notice, sixthly, adoption is rooted in union with Christ. Right at the end of verse 6, with which he has, and so this gift of adoption, he has blessed us with it, In the beloved, that it is by virtue of our union with God's beloved one, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we as his children become his beloved people. Six characteristics, six marks, six aspects of this wonderful truth. God has adopted us Christians as his son. Now, what makes this admirable? What makes this so wonderful? I was wrestling with that very question this past week and how to, by God's grace, God's spirit, impress upon you the magnitude of this truth. And my assertion, my contention that with this truth, this reality, we arrive at the climax of the Bible. And I decided I needed a little help. And I'm going to take a little help from a book penned by Russell Moore. And if you have never read this book, I encourage you to read it. Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. And I want you to listen closely to what he says in one segment of this book. And again, let me just set the context for you. My contention that this doctrine is the climax of the Bible. How, how it should impress upon us just how, how wonderful, how wonderful this truth is that God would take us as his children, his adopted sons. Listen carefully. This is going somewhere. Imagine for a moment that you are adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker, in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin kittens alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended life the same way, death by suicide each found hanging from a rope of blankets in his respective prison cell. Think for a moment. Oh, think carefully for a moment. Would you want this child? Well, he is you. This child is you. And he is me. That is what the gospel is telling us. That is what the gospel is telling us. Our birth father, our birth father has fangs. 
and left to ourselves, we will show ourselves to be as serpentine as he is. But in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons. That is what makes this truth so wonderful when we just stop and consider who we are naturally and that God looks so favorably upon us and takes sinners such as us, willfully alienated from him, naturally hostile to him, and claims us as his own and elevates us to such a position where he acknowledges us, embraces us as his children. Oh, I'll say it again, my friend. This is the climax of the Bible. This is the climax, the pinnacle, the summit, the acme, the apex of the Christian faith. That God would adopt sinners into his family. Now, what does Paul say specifically about adoption back in the context of Romans 8? He doesn't really explain adoption in and of itself. What he does in our text in Romans 8 is he enumerates the privileges of adoption or the blessings of adoption. And there are six. Here's number one. The first blessing of adoption. We reflect our father's likeness. As adopted children, here's privilege number one, we reflect our father's likeness. We see this in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, what you should be asking yourself at this very moment is this. I fail to see the connection between this verse and what you just said. We reflect our father's likeness. Look carefully. Look closely. Begin with me at the end of the verse. Sons of God. So we're all agreed. We know of whom he is speaking. Sons of God. Here's the question. Who are these sons of God? Now work backwards in the verse. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I ask you again. Who are sons of God? They are all who are Led by the Spirit of God. Here's where we get into trouble because we use our little pet phrases today and we hear that little phrase led by the Spirit and how do we think immediately? We think of some sort of internal impulse whereby the Spirit inclines me to do something. Oh, the Spirit is showing me to do this or compelling me to do that. Paul never uses the expression that way. And it most certainly isn't how he's using it here. He's already defined those who are led by the Spirit. Notice the very first word in the verse. For means what? Because, which means what? If you want to know who these people are, those who are led by the Spirit of God, you need to go where? Back into the 13th verse. What does he say in the 13th verse? He tells us that all who live by the Spirit, what do they do? They put to death the deeds of the body. Preached on that last week. They put to death the deeds of the body that where the spirit dwells, where the spirit has taken up residence. This is one of the sure marks. 
He, by that Spirit, we then daily, day after day after day, we mortify sin. We seek to overthrow sin's dominion in us. We put to death the deeds of the body. Paul's point is this. Those who put to death the deeds of the body are those who are led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? The sons of God. Therefore, the sons of God, who are they? They are those who put to death the deeds of the body. They are those who mortify sin. Paul's point is simply this, that as God's children, we, we look like him. We use that little expression, don't we? Like father, like son. Oh, he's a chip off his father, the old block, right? We use that, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. Uh, scripture emphasizes this. Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, as beloved children, as beloved children, God's children, be imitators, mind-boggling, of God. The word imitator, you know, the actual word in the original language, you know what word we get from it today? Mimic. What Paul is saying is this. Since you are children of God, as the adopted children of God, mimic God. Imitate God. You're telling me I'm supposed to imitate God. I am telling you that this is the first privilege of sonship. This is the first privilege of adoption into the family of God that we begin to reflect our Father's likeness. How do we reflect His likeness? In two principal ways. Firstly, we reflect our Father's goodness. Listen to these texts. Luke 6. Be merciful, says the Lord Jesus. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Listen to him again out of Matthew 5. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is a privilege of sonship, adoption, that we actually mimic our Father by reflecting his goodness. Not only his goodness. Here's the second way. We reflect his likeness, his holiness. We mimic our father's holiness. First Peter 1 verse 16, God speaking, you shall be holy. For I am holy. Listen to what Peter said, Paul says in Philippians 2, be blameless and innocent. It's a commandment. Be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is the first privilege, blessing of adoption, that we actually look like our Father. We imitate Him. We mimic Him. We seek to reflect his goodness, and we seek to reflect his holiness, putting to death the deeds of the body. Let me just bring this to a head.
And let me impress the importance of this upon you. I'll, I'll try to just encapsulate it all in, 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 a, in, a, in a brief paragraph. Here it is. Our chief act of worship is not exaltation. It might surprise you, but it is not. Our chief act of worship is not exaltation, you know, even singing. Our chief act of worship is not admiration. Our chief act of worship is not adoration. I have no problem with any of those things. Please hear me out. These things do not constitute our chief act of worship. Our chief act of worship as the children of God is imitation. Imitation. Our chief act of worship as the adopted sons of God is to imitate him, mimic him, reflect who he is in goodness and holiness. Here's the second blessing of adoption. We enjoy our father's favor. We see it in the 15th verse. Paul writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now he makes a contrast here. But you received, have received, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there's a contrast here. He's setting up two things and, and contrasting them. Over here, what does he set up? The spirit of slavery. Over here, the spirit of adoption. And his point is this, that as God's children, we did, have not received this spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, into terror, but we have received this spirit of adoption as sons. First thing I want you to note is most of you are using the ESV, right? You read this verse, 15, you did not receive the spirit. Notice the word spirit, small s, correct? Keep reading, spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received what? The spirit, capital S, the spirit of adoption. I want to suggest to you that both instances should be capitalized. Both are of reference. Neither is capitalized in the original language. They didn't use capitals. We have to try to discern, ascertain, is this sort of my spirit or a different spirit or the Holy Spirit? I submit to you that Paul here is making two explicit references to the Holy Spirit. And he is pointing to two distinct works, very important, but distinct works of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking of the Spirit, capital S of slavery over here. He is the spirit of slavery pre-conversion. Why? What does he do? He forces us to look at the law, and he forces us to take a hard, long look at ourselves. He brings us face to face with our sinfulness, and in so doing, he produces terror as we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Having done that, he becomes the spirit of adoption. How? Because he eases the terror. How? By leading us to the Lord Jesus, where we find forgiveness. And so Paul is reminding us here, look, we now enjoy our Father's favor. That spirit of terror, that spirit of fear, that spirit of condemnation, that spirit of slavery. Yes, it was necessary for a time, but it is past. That was pre-conversion. You've now been forgiven. The spirit of adoption now resides in you. And there has been a complete alteration in, in your status. You go all the way back to the very first verse of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation. We've not received that spirit of slavery leading to terror anymore. There is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. A complete change, alteration in our standing, our position, our status in God's sight. Let me try to drive this home by asking you a very simple question, a little quiz. Who is Tong Min Tiong? Trick question. Who's Tong Min Chong? You know her as Emma. Tong Min Chong is Emma Yule. Only a handful of you knew that. And so, almost four years ago, as we made our way around Nanchang, China, our handlers, literally handlers, taking us by the hands, leading us to this government building, that government building, this government building, signature after signature, pictures, documents, forms, applications, on and on and on it went. At the beginning of that process, what did we see on the documents? Tong Min Chung. By the end, on those documents, what did we see? Emma Yule. Why? Her status had been radically altered. She was now ours. That was a permanent change in her position. A permanent change in her standing. A permanent alteration in her status. That is Paul's point here. Oh, my beloved, please understand this. You did not receive the spirit, capital S, of slavery to fall back into fear. Yes, it was necessary for a time to bring you to conversion, to bring you to the cross, to bring you to Christ. But now this is what you have received. The spirit of adoption as sons. A completely different legal status. That is privilege number two. We now enjoy our Father's favor. Here is privilege number three. We receive our Father's attention. It gets us in, still in the 15th verse. We're not quite out of it yet. Follow along as I read it one more time. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Here's the phrase I want us to hone in on now, right at the end of the verse. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice three things briefly. First of all, notice the source of this cry. By whom? Who's the whom? He's just told us. The spirit of adoption it is the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in us. Now by this spirit, we never would have uttered this cry before. But now by this spirit, because of this spirit, we cry. That is the source of the cry. It is a spiritual cry. Notice secondly, the nature of the cry. Hmm. We cry. We hear that, and we don't make that much of it. We want to move on to the phrase, Abba, Father. But let me just pause here, suggest to you that we often neglect the nature of this cry. As you do a little study, and you look through the New Testament, where this same word is used, I found it on a few occasions. I found it used in reference to the demoniac when confronted with the Lord Jesus. He cried. 
We find it again with blind Bartimaeus. Remember the beggar. He cried out to the Lord. And most importantly and significantly, you know where we find it? On the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ cried. Hear these words. This is not a cry of tranquility, but of intense emotion. This is not an infant cooing out the words, Daddy. This is a primal scream. It is the scream of the crucified. Puts a whole new complexion on this verse, doesn't it? Listen again to Russell Moore, what he has to say as we move into the third now. The object, or rather the content of this cry. You've got the source, it's by the Spirit. You've got the nature, it is this primal scream. Now the content, Abba, Father. And listen to what Russell Moore pens. Very helpful. He writes of his own experience adopting two boys from Russia. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all the others in its sheer horror. It was quiet. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds, but they didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. They had stopped long ago. This dehumanizing is a horror. Then he goes on to say, The first moment I knew my boys had received us, in some strange and preliminary way, was the moment we walked out of that room for the last time on the first trip, when little Maxim, now Benjamin, fell back in his crib and cried. The first time I had ever heard him do it, it was because, for whatever reason, he seemed to think he'd be heard. And for whatever reason, he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. He now knew someone was listening. Oh, hear this. The Spirit leads us to cry out, with the universe. Oh God, deliver us from this. This world is not how it's supposed to be. That is the working of the Spirit of God in us. The source of the cry, the Spirit. The nature of the cry, intense emotion. The content of the cry, Abba, Father. And here is the privilege of adoption. We have our Father's attention. And the very reason we cry is what? We expect to be heard. We know we'll be heard. We know who our Heavenly Father is, and the Spirit compels us to cry out to Him. We receive His attention. Here's privilege number four. We perceive our Father's delight. Verse 16, quickly. We're going to have to move it along here a little. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, 
bears witness. Interesting, that word is where we get our word martyr from. So someone who makes public witness, someone who makes public testimony, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit as to what? That we are children of God. He testifies to it. God doesn't leave us in any doubt. There isn't any ambiguity here. God doesn't want a bunch of people running around thinking to themselves, well, I'm not sure if I'm in or I'm out. I'm not sure if I'm his or I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm part of the kingdom or not. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. I'm not sure I'm a child of God or not. No, he's given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes testimony, makes witness, gives witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How does he do that? He does it in at least four distinct ways. Quickly, the first takes us back to the 14th verse. He witnesses with our spirits that we are children of God. How? By causing us to mortify sin. That as we deal with sin in our lives, however pathetically it might be at times, the very fact that we do desire to mortify sin in our lives testifies to what? The indwelling presence of God, of the Spirit of God. Thereby, the Spirit of God testifies to what? Our adoption. He witnesses with our spirits that we are children of God. Secondly, it takes us back to the 15th verse. The Spirit testifies, witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. How? By leading us to cry. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So he does it first, this witness, by causing us to mortify sin. He does it secondly, by causing us to cry out to God. He does it thirdly, by identifying us with Christ. That brings us a little ahead of ourselves into the 17th verse. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And so Christ is not simply a figment of our imagination. He's not some hypothetical individual. Christ becomes real. Calvary's cross becomes a reality. The resurrection is a reality. The ascension is the reality. Jesus Christ is a living person. And our interest in him is made real to us by the Holy Spirit, assuring us of our union with him. And he does it fourthly, how? You go all the way back to Romans 5, fifth verse, maybe the sixth verse, where Paul declares what? That God's love has been poured out in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Oh, my friend, please do not misinterpret that. Don't go home sitting on your couch thinking I'm just waiting for a warm, fuzzy feeling to pour over my heart so that I know for sure God loves me. That's not Paul's point. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. The Spirit of God testifies how? He pours out God's love in our hearts. How? By making this book real to us. By making the promises of God tangible to us. By convincing us of this truth, God is speaking to us. His invitation to come to Christ is directed at us. His promise to forgive is given to you. His promise to receive is given to you. His promise to never leave you nor forsake you is given to you. When the Spirit of God makes that come alive... Oh, that's the love of God poured out in the heart. Not some subjective, silly experience, but an objective reality 
unchangeable, despite how you're feeling today. Unchangeable because it's based on the unchanging, unwavering promises and word of God. This is a tremendous privilege. We perceive our Father's delight in us. The fifth privilege, now into the 17th verse. We obtain our Father's inheritance. Here we go. Now it gets real good. If children, then heirs. That's what I'm talking about. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We obtain our Father's inheritance. Again, quickly, what does it look like? Oh, it's magnitude inexhaustible. Let me at least give you a tantalizing taste of this inheritance by pointing you in three directions. Here we go. Direction number one. As the children of God, we inherit the world. It's ours. We get it. The world is ours. You go back to Romans chapter 4 verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of a little strip of territory to the east of the Mediterranean. That's not what the promise was, folks. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Oh, hear it. Bank on it. The meek shall inherit the earth. There is a new world order coming. Christ is returning, and this kingdom of grace will give way to a kingdom of glory. There will be an eternal separation between the sheep and the goats, those who are in and those who are out, those who believe in Christ and those who do not believe in Christ. There are two very clear eternal destinies. Understand it. Bank on it, please. And the eternal destiny of the children of God is what? A renewed cosmos. A renewed heavens and earth, a renewed universe, a renewed world that defies imagination. We are the heirs of God, the world. Secondly, we inherit what? God himself. You go back to Romans chapter 5, Paul hints at this. Actually, it's not really a hint. He states it in very black and white terms. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through him, that is through Christ. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of what? Oh, the glory of God. It's ours. We see him now. We do. Not through the eyes of sense. We see him through the eyes of faith. We see the effects of his works. Creation. Salvation. Providence, we see the effects, but these are but mere inklings of who God is. A day is coming, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. We are going to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ to such a degree that the tantalizing tastes we have of him now will be but the proverbial drop in an ocean 
as everything that hinders our appreciation of God's glory at this moment is removed. And it becomes full. It becomes final. And it becomes complete. And we find the eternal satisfaction and delight of our souls in our Heavenly Father. Thirdly, we inherit not just the world. We not only inherit God himself. We inherit a glorified soul and body. More of this next Sunday, but now just by way of preview, Romans 8, jump ahead to the 22nd verse. For we know that the whole creation, heavens and earth, the whole universe, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even creation anticipates that something better is coming. Something's going to happen. And not only the creation, but we ourselves Here's the Spirit again, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment of the Spirit. We groan inwardly. Might take us back to that cry, that, that, that cry, Abba, Father. We groan, we cry out, groan inwardly. Why? As we wait eagerly for what? Adoption as sons. Now I'm really confused. I thought we were talking about adoption. I thought we were talking about the fact that I'm already adopted. Oh, yes, my friend, there are now and not yet realities to salvation. There is the now, the here, the present, the already, and the not yet. You're saved, but I got a surprise for you. You're not yet saved. You're not. You're adopted. Surprise for you. You are not yet adopted. Sanctified. Surprise for you. Not yet sanctified. You're redeemed. Big surprise for you. Not yet redeemed. We merely enjoy the tastes of these realities and privileges now. We will enter into the full inheritance then. Look at what he says. We're waiting for what? Yes, eagerly. For what? Adoption as sons. What does he specifically have in mind? The redemption of our bodies. That's a resurrection that's a glorified body being united with a glorified soul, inheriting a glorified universe as we gaze upon a glorified Savior. We are heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. That's the fifth blessing of adoption. Here's the sixth, quickly. I've said that a lot. I might mean it this time. We experience our Father's discipline. I know you want me to skip over this one. I can't. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. We experience our Father's discipline. Verse 17, again, in its entirety. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided. We suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him, our identity with Christ as a fellow heir is so complete that we are united with him in his pathway to glory. And his pathway to glory had to go through what? The cross. Christian, 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 you are no different. There are no exemptions. There is no way to get around this. The pathway to glory is suffering. 
The only way to the crown is the cross. Why? Because our Father loves us. He loves us. You hear the words written in Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for training. It's for your training, your maturity that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It is a privilege. I break my arm, completely hypothetical. Rush to the emergency, and uh, things just sort of hanging there. And the doctor on duty, on call, well, we're going to have to set it. And uh, brace yourself, it's going to hurt. All right? I have a choice, don't I? I can walk out of there, right? What's then going to happen to that arm? It, it is going to heal, but it might be an abnormality or deformity. I, completely, I could lose complete use of it. What's the point? A little pain to what? A lot of gain. That something that, is, that, that, that in the moment will per, potentially be excruciating, something that in the moment will at the very least be uncomfortable, is absolutely necessary because it is for my long-term good, long-term benefit. Oh, understand this and embrace it and celebrate it as a privilege of adoption. Your Father loves you. And because He loves you, He disciplines you. And because he loves me, he disciplines me. He trains us. And part of this training is what? That as we hope, looking forward with this confident expectation of glory, we will suffer now in this fallen world as we seek to live in identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Six blessings of adoption. Again, I submit to you, the climax of the Bible. Let me ask you two pointed questions as I conclude. The first is this, to any unbelievers in our midst. Does this not make you long to turn to Christ as your heavenly father? Does it not make you just pause for a moment to consider, well, well who am I in relation to God? You see, we're speaking here of Christians, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if they are alone are the children of God, what does that make me? Despite what you hear out there, so oh, we're all children of God. Biggest load of nonsense going. We are not all children of God. Only those who are in Christ are children of God. Well, if you are outside of Christ, does, not, does that not just begin to create some inkling, a desire in you? To take God as your heavenly father and to know that God himself takes you as his child. Oh, please understand, it is not just that we have committed sins. It is that we are sinful. It is not just that we've done wrong. It's that we fail to do what's right. It's not just that we've fallen short of our standards. It's that we've fallen short of God's standards. It's not just that we've broken one or two of God's commandments. It's that they're all lie in a heap, broken and shattered. Not just that we've sinned, it's that we've loved sinning. It's not just that we've offended men and women, it's that we've offended God. Do you understand who you are as an unbeliever? And do you understand who God is as your judge? And do you understand that in a moment of time, this terrifying judge, is prepared, this terrifying God, 
is prepared to become a welcoming God. That this judging God is prepared to become a pardoning God. That this judge, offended judge, is prepared to become a reconciled father to all who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, hear the words of John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now let me speak to the Christians. Let me preach to the choir. Here it is. Is this climax of the Bible something that occupies your thoughts daily, continually, readily? A few Sundays ago, I, speak, I spoke of well-worn paths in the mind. Do you recall that? I spoke of the fact that we all have them. Those trails in our minds that we have been down so many times that the grass is gone. It's just hardened soil, hardened rock. We go down them time and time again. And how so many of us, these, 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 these trails that we follow and we let our minds go down repeatedly, focused on past sins, past failures, past shortcomings, folks, all these negative thoughts. Oh, here is a wonderful thought, a wonderful truth, the climax of the Bible that should usurp them all. God has taken you to himself as a child, and you are his heavenly, his, you are, he is your heavenly father, and you are his son. God has lavished his love upon us. He has changed our legal status. He has placed us in his family with all its rights and privileges. He has made us his children. In a word, he has become to us a heavenly father. And with this, we arrive at the climax of the Bible. Our Father, we pray now that by your spirit, you might take this word. And as we have hinted at already this morning, you might take it and make it alive to us for the well-being of our souls. For the unbelievers in our midst, those whose hearts are still hardened, those whose hearts are still stubborn, we pray that you might break them. We pray that your hammer might strike against these hardened hearts and truly loosen them that the light of the gospel might penetrate you might bring them to an awareness, a consciousness of their sin, the truth of the gospel, and of your glory in the Lord Jesus. The confused this morning, we pray that you might bring understanding. For the troubled, we pray that you might bring bright, much comfort and encouragement. For the wayward, we ask you to bring correction and draw them back lovingly to yourself. And in all things and above all things, far exceeding all things, we pray for the exaltation of your Son in our midst, in whose name we do pray. Amen.